I'm so glad to see you, and I'm glad to start the new year with you. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 3. As you turn there, let me, let me tell you, uh, let me read this quote to you. One of the great fallacies in life is that it's just about hard work and trying a little harder. Bill Walton, the great basketball player, said that a few years ago, and it's a truth that he, as he tells it, he learned the hard way. And you may be here thinking, oh man, there's another sports illustration. And, uh, but hang with me for a second. Bill Walton played basketball in the 1970s and 1980s. In 1974, he was uh, the Portland Trailblazers' number one overall draft pick. In fact, he was the first player drafted in 1974. And it began one of the most exciting and disappointing careers in the history of the NBA. So 21 years old, Walton is 6'11", and he's already a legend just been named college basketball player of the year, third year in a row, two national titles with his team, played under the legendary coach John Wooden, 88-game winning streak. In fact, many basketball historians would say he may be the greatest college uh, basketball player that there ever was. In 1974, the Trailblazers draft him, uh, but in the first two seasons, while on the court, he was plagued with injuries. He broke his nose, he broke his foot, he broke his wrist, broke his leg. Missed the playoffs both of those years. His third season, he was healthy enough to play 65 games, led his team to a Cinderella season, but didn't get to play in the All-Star game that, uh, because of an injury. The next year suffered a broken foot, turned out to be the first in a string of feet and ankle injuries cut his, that would end up cutting his career short. By 1978, that was the last year Walton played for the Trailblazers. The next season, he goes to the Clippers, only played 14 games due to injuries. Throughout his career, he would end up missing 762 games because of injury. That's an equivalent of nine seasons. But then something happened to him. In 1984, he emerged the healthiest that he'd ever been in his career with the Boston Celtics. Played a career high of 80 games, helped the Celtics to an NBA championship, and was voted the sixth man um, of, the, uh, of, the, uh, of the NBA and regular season MVP. He, he, so what, what happened? What happened before the 1984 season that made such a difference? Well, it's simple. Bill Walton hired a nutritionist. He started eating salmon, occasionally a steak, and that's a big change because before 1984, Bill Walton was a vegetarian. Now, there are plenty of veg healthy vegetarians. I'm sure there are. But at 6'11", and competing at the physical level that he was, Walton wasn't healthy. He was brittle. He'd ruined his body 
and he'd ruined his career. And by the age of 57 years old, he'd had 36 orthopedic surgeries. Walton had phenomenal ability, but he had a malnourished body. For Walton, working harder wasn't the answer. In fact, it probably did more harm than good. What he needed was he needed to get healthy. And that brings me to Galatians chapter 3. You see, the Galatians, they were in danger of becoming a Bill Walton story. They had phenomenal ability. Actually, they had supernatural ability. They had the Holy Spirit. They were in union with Christ. They'd they'd been justified by Christ uh, in faith. Everything that Christ is had been reckoned to their account. But as Paul puts it, they were being bewitched by the Judaizing vegans, if I can say it that way. That's it. No more vegan jokes. I'm done. They were taking these believers who were now new creations in Christ, believers who were indwelt by the Holy Spirit, with all their supernatural resources, their, the heavenly resources, and they were wanting to put them on a diet, a, a do better, try harder, check the boxes, get your circumcision, don't be naughty, you better be nice because Santa Claus is coming to town, diet, that kind of a thing. And Paul was hot about it. Because to borrow the words of Bill Walton, one of the greatest fallacies of the Christian life is that it's just about hard work and trying a little harder. At the beginning of Galatians chapter 3, Paul is going to remind the Galatians that when he preached the gospel of Jesus crucified, that the eyes of their heart were enlightened and the Holy Spirit moved on them and they began their life with Jesus by faith, hearing the gospel with faith. It wasn't something that their flesh did. God did it. God saved them. The the gospel was preached. The Spirit moved Faith opened the eyes of their heart, and they were able to see Jesus, who he is, what he'd accomplished by dying for their sins on the cross, and the new life that he offered by rising from the dead. And they believed. That was faith. That's how it started. And he wanted the Galatian believers to know. Believers, just like just like us gathered here this morning, wanted the believers to know that this Christian life, that this life with Jesus, growing in Christ, this thing we call sanctification, it is also by faith. It's not by the flesh. It's not working hard and trying harder. You see, you received the Holy Spirit by faith. If you're a believer this morning, you've trusted Christ. That moment, the Spirit of God indwelled you. Well, how did it happen? Well, the first part of chapter 3, hearing, that's what it says. It's not what you do, it's what you hear. 
believing what you heard. Now, Paul's going to say something about the gospel um, from, from which he preached, and I, that's where I want to pick up. I want to pick up in verse 7 of Galatians chapter 3. Now, I just want to look at three verses real quick. Look at how Paul says it, Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. I'm going to read it with some emphasis. See if I, I can see if you can pick out what, what I'm looking at this morning. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. There's several things that could be said about these verses, but I just want to focus on one thing this morning. In verse 7, Paul says, Know then that those of faith, so those of faith, those that are the believers, those of faith are the sons of Abraham. And then in verse 9, look at what he says again. So, those of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. In between verse 7 and verse 9, as he's addressing those of faith, in between verse 7 and verse 9, you, between the knowing who they are and the knowing that they are blessed, Paul's going to make one of the most remarkable statements about Scripture, about God's Word in all the New Testament. Look at verse Eight again. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, the scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abram. Verse 6, Abraham is the man of faith because he believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. And this is more than just believing in God, by the way. It's he believed God. He trusted God. God spoke. He, he re, God revealed himself, his promise to Abraham, his purpose, his will, his covenant. God spoke. Abraham heard it and believed. Faith is believing God. God speaking, and then we believe. And we know what God says because he's revealed himself and, and inspired men to record what it is that he said. So those of faith, the believers, are those that hear God and believe. So we want to be hearers, right? Paul will write to the Romans, and he'll say, faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the word of Christ. And then two chapters later, he'll tell us that we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. Here's the truth. All of us, something outside of you, Something outside of you is shaping you. 
In fact, each of us has enough history that's molded and shaped us and an old story that we all know, an old script, old lines, an old character played out perfectly by our old man or our old woman. But but as believers, what Paul's trying to say is as believers, we've been made new in Christ. We're we're united to Jesus. We have a new story, a new storyline. His story is our story, a, a new past and a new present with a new future that extends into forever. This, this new unfolding drama of our life. And Jesus is the main character of our story. And so that's why I'm pausing here in verse 8 on January the 1st of 2023. Because I want us to see what Paul is saying to the Galatians about God's word to the Galatians who are so in danger of living the Christian life malnourished. And the truth is, we're not much different today. A few years ago, Willow Creek Church did this study with over 1,500 churches, thousands and thousands of believers. What they assumed going into the study is that church attendance would make all the difference with regard to the growth in your Christian life. That if you, that if you were at church and you were at church enough that there was some threshold, you'd be at church or engaged in the church activities enough that that would translate into spiritual growth. That was the assumption going into it. Here's what they ended up discovering. That the most powerful catalyst for spiritual growth in a believer's life reading and reflecting on Scripture. That the believer who's not feeding their soul with God's Word has, has a malnourished faith. You feel stalled in your spiritual growth. And, it, and what it translates into is that a church is filled with burned out, benched, and retired Bill Waltons. Paul says in Galatians 3.16, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. So I want to take a minute. I'm going to linger on what Paul says here because I think it can be a great encouragement for us this morning. Great encouragement for us this year. About about caring for our our souls. But what it means to have a well-fed faith. When Queen Elizabeth was inaugurated in 1950. Three, there's this moment in the inauguration, and they present a Bible to her. And then what the archbishop says in the presenting of the Bible, he says, we present you with this book, the most valuable thing this world affords. Here is wisdom. These are the lively oracles of God. That's good. Patrick Henry, 
you know, give me liberty or give me death guy, says about the Bible, this book is worth more than all the others that were ever printed. Dostoevsky, Russian novelist, read through the entire Bible in a Russian translation for the very first time, and he declared right afterwards, he said, one gains for one thing the conviction that humanity possesses and can possess no other book of equal significance. I give you one more. Billy Graham. Who at the end of his life asked, do you have any regrets? He said, I didn't read the Bible more. Which is startling. He said this of the Bible. No other book can touch its profound wisdom, its poetic beauty, or its accuracy of its history and prophecy. The Bible embodies all the knowledge man needs to fill the longing of his soul and solve all his problems. I want to be saturated with the Bible. I want to know it by heart before I die. I hope that stirs in you. I hope the Spirit of God is stirring in you this morning. Something beyond a New Year's resolution. I think New Year's resolutions are great. I mean, we reminds us all when we fail how humble we should be. But something more than that. The most valuable thing this world affords. Jesus says in Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So here's three things, and I'm not going to get through all of them. I'm going to try to get through the first two. But three things to take note of about what Paul's saying here. One, that the Bible is the gospel from God. The, the scripture preached, he says. And what's interesting is he's looking back, he's looking all the way back when he says that to Genesis 12:3, and it's where God calls Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. And when Abraham hears the call of God, he's hearing God's voice. And, and at that time, let's be clear, there's no written scripture. God is speaking. The voice of God brought truth and brought promise to the heart of Abraham. God has spoken. He's revealed himself. He's, he's literally unveiled himself. And he's taken the initiative to make himself known. And here's the thing. If, if he hadn't taken the initiative to make himself known, we wouldn't have known him. It would be centuries before Moses would come along and, and, and inscripturate what Abraham heard from God. He, he'd write it down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God's word spoken to Abraham was divine. It had it, it, existence. It, it was alive. It was doing something already and was still in effect. And it is still as fresh and real and alive today as when God spoke it to Abraham. 
Isn't that wild? See, the Bible is not just another religious book. It's not human thoughts about God. I mean, yes, it's the product of human beings written by men in their language, from their place in history, with their experience, their worldview, all their personality. The humanity of the biblical author is intact, but the Bible is also a divine product. It is inspired. There was this supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit upon the Scripture writers, which rendered what they wrote being the very word of God. And so when Scripture speaks, God speaks. This is what we mean when we talk about Scripture being inspired. It's, it's God-breathed, every word breathed out by God. Peter says Scripture writers were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they spoke from God. So when you read God's Word, it's alive, it's active. It's, it's God speaking, revealing, unveiling Himself, making Himself known now. That the Bible is the gospel from God. So secondly, that in every Bible story, I'm just going to totally rip off Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Storybook Bible this morning, all right? In the Bible, every story whispers Jesus' name. She, she says this. I, I read it a couple of weeks ago. What's the Bible about? Rules? Heroes to imitate? No. The Bible's primarily a story about the single greatest hero from whom all creation longs. It's about the hero Jesus who came to right all the wrongs and redeem his people. The Bible is his story, and every story whispers his name. The gospel, if the gospel's from God, then the content of the gospel is his son, Jesus Christ. See, I think one of the mistakes we can make is that we approach the Bible like a how-to manual or a source of daily inspiration or a nugget of wisdom or, or common sense for the common man. And I want to say this, to be sure, the Bible's full of wisdom, it's full of counsel. The Bible's not about us, though. There's only one hero, it's Jesus. There's, there's one theme, God's faithfulness to his people through the sacrifice of his beloved son, Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and every story and every page whispers his name. Now, let me say this. Maybe at this point, you might want to raise your hand and you say, look, I've, I've tried reading the Bible, and I've never heard it whispered to me. In fact, I've never heard anything. In fact... It's hard to read. It's hard to understand. I mean, I get it. I need to read it. But I've tried. I've failed. And you're making it sound easier than it is, Ross. Fair enough. So let me address that for a few minutes. Because I think when we hear a sermon like this, it's easy to say, yes, I believe that. I want that. 
But my experience tells me I can't do it. That I've tried and I've, I've failed. If God wanted me to hear what he had to say, why, why didn't he make it easier? Well, why does it seem so hard? So, so let me give a few answers to that first. I think most Christians, most of us, don't know how to approach the Bible. Let me say it this way. We don't know what to expect when we pick it up and when we open it. But we need our expectations calibrated. Let me say it that way. So, here's one thing I would say. It's the Bible's not magic. Don't expect to hear a voice from heaven or a light flicker or an angel appear or a brilliant poem to flow out in your journal. And and let me just, if some of you have, maybe none of you do. This may reveal way more about me than it does you. But if you have like journal paralysis, like I think journalings were great. I think writing down what's going on in our life and talking to the Lord about things in our journal, writing out prayers, I think that's good. It's, it's great. It, it's, it's great, you know, anchor to look back on in our lives. But some of us have journal paralysis because we write as though someday someone's going to pick this up, read it, and go, whoa. You know, and publish it. And, you know, posthumously, you know, all the journals of Ross Strader. And, and nobody's going to do that. Nobody's going to. Doesn't matter what you write or how pretty it is or not pretty it is. It doesn't. See, God's Word, it's mysterious. It's not magic, but it is mysterious. It's the Word of God. And if you're a believer, the Spirit of God is at, is at work in you through the Word of God, conforming you to the likeness of His Son. See also Romans 12, 1 and 2. Whether you feel it or you see it or you can measure it, God's Word does not return Void. You can trust that it is at work in you. So, one, that's how we approach the Bible. I, I say this, I, and I, I probably say it carelessly, but I, I exagger, I'm exaggerating this because I want to make the point. I, if you'll spend time in God's Word, it the prerequisite of God's Word having its effect on you is not that you understand it. There are a lot of times I, I will read God's Word and I will scratch my head and I'll go away and think, oh, I'm, I don't know what I read today. I don't know how that applies to my life. But the hope is not in my understanding of God's Word. My hope is in the power of this Word that is living, active, sharper than a two-edged sword and has the ability to get down inside of me in places I don't even know exist. That's the mystery. Secondly, this is going to sound like the first one, but it is a little bit different. Secondly, 
reminding ourselves God's word doesn't just mean something. It certainly means something. But it also does something. We've said it, say it again, you'll hear me say it again. It's living, it's active, it's sharper than a two-edged Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.23, you have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. James 1.18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Third thing about this, how we approach the Bible. Third, this is super practical, but the Bible is written in context, meaning this. It's written by a person, and it's written to a people for, for a reason. And sometimes our, our, the impasse for us is that we run into understanding the Bible as we open it and we read the words on the page and we want them to directly relate to me now in my situation. Or we read it and simply don't understand what's going on. When we read God's Word, we want to hear what God's saying through his word, it means first hearing how he said it in the original context. It means hearing what God said and how he said it through the original human author to, to his audience. See, in the 21st century, we, we have some bridges, uh, some, some gaps that we need to build bridges for. One of those is a history gap. You know, thinking about what the world was like. How did people live? What, what, what part of the world was this in? What was happening? It's just reminding ourselves. There's a cultural gap. What was the culture like? That's really helpful when we read some things that are really hard. There's a language gap. Sometimes the Bible uses terms that we're not familiar with. There can be a theology gap. How much did the, did the readers, the writer and the readers, how much did they know about God? How much had God revealed up to that point in history about himself? Believe it or not, a good study Bible will, will help you bridge all of those gaps. Each of the study Bibles, and they're all good. They have an introduction at the beginning of each of the books of the Bible that are 10 or 15 minutes worth of reading. You have an overview that will help you transport your mind into the world of the biblical writer and their, their audience. And then in addition to that, on the bottom of the page, there, there are notes, commentaries on the verses, help you understand what's going on. Just be careful not to spend all your time reading the notes. They're there to help you with the text. Here's a fourth thing. And if you're keeping track, I only have five. Fourth. Maybe you need a starting place. Maybe the place for you to start is 
is not reading at all. Maybe it's listening. You can download, you know, you version on your phone at the end of the service. There's an ESV app. Both are free. There's a lot of free Bible apps. They both have audio features. That it's a great, um, maybe the place for you to start is listening. It's not a bad place to start, by the way. The Bible was read publicly for centuries before people had their own copies. People would memorize it that way. They'd meditate on it. There's a power in hearing God's Word read aloud. Your faith will starve without God's Word. Your faith needs to be nourished. Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 19.10 tells us God's word is sweeter than honey. Matthew 4, Jesus says, man cannot live by bread alone. God's word is food for your soul. In John's gospel, Jesus is the living water and the bread of life. You you can't have a well-fed faith without nourishment from God's word. If this morning you find, you say, well, yeah, listen, I'm starting from scratch. Or I, I'm starting again after a long time to get into God's Word. I haven't done it in a long time, and you preach a good sermon, good enough that I'll give this a try. Let me say it this way. Don't jump into a, a plan, okay? Plans are fine. Just turn, turn to the Word. Maybe you, you could start... In Psalm 119, it's a good long psalm. Don't read the whole thing at once. 10, 12, 15 minutes. Put it down, meditate on it. Think about it when you're at the stoplight. And pick up again tomorrow. You could start in the Gospel of John and do the same thing. Read a half a chapter or a chapter a day. You could start in Ephesians, reading through Ephesians 1 through 3, and reading through it every day, the same chapters, every day for 30 days. This is just different ways to start. Well, what about a reading plan? Well, if you've never done one, let me give you a couple of ideas here. One, you could read the whole New Testament in, in 12 months, in about seven minutes a day. Let me say that again, because some of you, you dropped off on me here. You're thinking about the Ephesians thing and wondering if I was crazy. You could read the entire New Testament in 12 months, just seven minutes a day. Tell you what, somebody will say, well, what do you do? Well, I do the Murray McShane reading plan, and that sounds really complicated. It's not. You can find it on all the Bible apps. You could Google it after the service. It's two Old Testament chapters and two New Testament chapters a day. It takes me about 25 minutes. And here's the other thing. If I miss, if I miss a day, or it's cut short and I don't get through it all, you know what I do? I move on. I let it go. 
start the next day where I'm supposed to start. I, when I decided to do that, you wouldn't believe how guilt-free reading the Bible became. I know what happens. Start this Bible reading plan. It's January 1st. Your sermon, I'm all pumped up. I'm going to go out the living active word that's sharper than the two-edged sword. I'm getting that. I'm going to, get, I'm going to let that cut me up this year. And you get like seven or eight solid days, and then you like Instagram about it. That's, I mean, that'll kill you. And two days after that, you forgot, and then you get three days behind, and you think, oh, how am I going to read all those chapters? Now I've got like eight, you know, chapters to read. Or just let it go. Let it go. Start fresh the next day wherever you're supposed to be on that day. Let it go. You'll come back around. All right, here's number five. Then we'll get out of here. Three questions to ask while you read. If you take notes, write it down. But those of you that take notes probably don't need to write it down. It's the people that don't take notes. So write it down for a friend and hand it to them when you leave. Here's three questions to ask. One, what do I see? When I'm reading, what, what do I see here? What, what, what's here? What stands out? What, what catches my eye? But don't worry. There's no right or wrong answer in those things. But what do you see? That's the first question. Here's the second question to ask. Well, I, why is this here? I mean, of all the things that could be written, of all the things God could have revealed, why this? Why, why did he want his people to know this. It's a good thing to think about. Again, I, don't worry about a right answer. What do I see? But why is it here? Here's the third question. What does this tell me about who God is? What does it tell me about who God is? What do I see? But why, why is that here? What does this tell me about who God is? Do, do, I, do I hear the echoes of Jesus? You know, when you're in the Old Testament, you can think about it like a sonar. And the Old Testament sends a ping out into the future, and it echoes and bounces off the New Testament and comes, comes back, if you will. The Old Testament writers heard a promise of God's redemption, a redeemer, the one to come. After the resurrection, Jesus gets two men in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus, opens the scriptures, and he says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Back John 5, Jesus says, for if you believed in Moses, you'd believe in me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? Give you one example. You may have heard it before, but I'll give it to you in my words. You read the story of David and Goliath. You're not meant to read it as though you're David. You know, buck up, slay your giant, be a David, face your giants, all that stuff. It's not helpful. There are some giants that are overwhelming to us. You read the Bible that way, you're going to be discouraged. David, he didn't march out as our example. 
Remember how he went out? He went out and says, you fight for your people, I'll fight for mine. That's what he told Goliath. He goes out as a representative for his people. David, he's from Bethlehem. He's a shepherd. He becomes the king. He defeats the enemy, not with the weapons of war. All the while being mocked. And the victory gets credited to all the people. See, as you read 1 Samuel 17, and that's where you find that story, you're not the hero. You're not called to be the hero and to buck up and to slay your giants in your own strength. What it's pointing to is that you have a hero, Jesus. He's defeated even greater giants than you're facing, and he's with you. And within you, by his spirit, and you can do all things through him who strengthens you. Let me encourage you this morning. Would you, would you, spend, would you spend time in God's word? Would you, would you take your spiritual health seriously and just start? We're not going to give out any grades. But just start. And let's see what God does this year. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I pray that you would stir in us the desire to spend time in your word. Father, something beyond just a resolution, we... We all feel that at this time of year, and they're not bad, but, Father, we need something more than that, something more than our, our flesh to drive us. I really pray that your spirit would, would stir in us. That's what we need. And that, Father, as we get into your word, I pray you'd be gracious to us and open our eyes, and that as we read the living word, your indwelling spirit would reveal to us the truths about your son Jesus. We'd see things we'd never seen before. We'd have something to think about at the stoplight. Something that would catch us in the moment just before we get angry. or Catch us in those moments just before we say careless words. Father, that would remind us of interactions with others of a kindness that would come supernaturally to us. Help us to see things as we go away from your word that we would have never seen before. And all of this we confess is a mystery. But Father, we trust you with that. We believe you to do that. And we pray all this the only way we can. In the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of your spirit. Amen.